Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. I have been trying to get in better shape this year and I've been trying a lot of different approaches. I like running, but it's too hot here in Arizona most of the time. Um, And it also just hurts. I think there's something wrong with me, because anytime I try to get into running, I injure myself. I like the actual running part, but the recovery is just not worth it. Like Ann Perkins, I know running is good for you, but at what cost? (laughs) So I thought swimming would be a fun alternative for cardio with less injuries. I started learning by watching tons of YouTube videos on how to swim before I hit the pool at the rec center. And after watching these videos, I bought some goggles and a swim cap, and I was all set. How hard could it be? When I got to the pool, it was not easy. For one, I had such a hard time putting on the swim cap. It's really tight rubber, and it smacks against your head when you do it wrong. The swim cap was just the first thing to shake my confidence. I tried to swim a lap in freestyle, just like I saw in all the YouTube videos, but much to my surprise, breathing in freestyle is impossible. I can swim for fun in the ocean, no problem, but in freestyle, you have to do it a specific way. I was gasping for air every few seconds, and it was concerning the lifeguards. (laughs) I could only swim a few meters before panicking and having to stop because it felt like I was drowning. I kept breathing in water by accident, and my heart felt like it was going to explode. I felt embarrassed. I couldn't get the hang of it. But I'd already bought a summer pass to swim for the summer, so I had to keep trying. Every other day, I had to show up to the pool knowing I looked like a dork who could drown at any minute. A few weeks went by and I'd gotten much better at breaststroke and backstroke, but I still couldn't do freestyle. I knew the lifeguards were judging me. Um, Eventually, I asked for help from my friend Kayla, who swam competitively, and I can now swim one lap in freestyle without stopping. (laughs) But I still get really winded. I know I'm not doing it quite right. I'm working really hard to get it, but right now I don't get it. I know logically that there's a way to do it. Every week I watch other people do it, but I can't get it right. Sometimes my approach is, I'm just gonna swim for fun today, just figure it out by myself and wing it. And then I flop to the other side and I say, I need to listen to the experts, do my drills. If I just do this exactly like the video, I'll get it right. But at this point, I don't trust myself or the experts. Neither approach has gotten me where I wanna go. This frustration is not unique to swimming. There are many ways in life we feel like our heads are underwater. As we try to make our way through life, we may try to follow our gut or listen to the experts, but are these tactics really working? Whether we are looking for specific answers or a greater sense of meaning, it's apparent that most people don't have it figured out. Maybe one of these things is a struggle for you. Maybe you threw yourself into a career, you focused and you found success and you're proud but you start to realize that the people in your field are often wrong and make terrible choices. You start to doubt the system. What if a good job doesn't mean you'll have a good life? Maybe you're looking for love, but you keep getting your heart broken. The people you go after or the people who go after you just lead nowhere. You find yourself in a subpar relationship or maybe even a no-label, no-commitment situationship. They're Barbie and you're just Ken. What if you are not Kenneth? 
maybe your career and relationships are okay, but the world keeps falling apart. The politicians and activists you used to put your hope in don't make a difference anymore. Society keeps progressing, but no one's lives seem to be improving. What if we can't fix the world's problems? Or maybe you know the world is untrustworthy and unreliable, so you've learned to rely on yourself. You learn how to do things your own way, be a rebel, live in the moment, but you wish that there was something you could rely on, because what happens if you can't even trust yourself? The postmodern world is riddled with these questions. In the modern era, which is the era before this one, people tried to find all the answers in philosophy and science. They thought that humans could fix the world if we just tried hard enough, but it didn't work. So the postmodern world we're living in now looks at all of that failed effort and gives up. It says nothing is real, no one has it figured out, no one knows what is best for you except for you. We can't look to the world to fix our problems anymore and we have to look out for ourselves because institutions can't be trusted and religion is a scam. Now we live in a society where nothing is considered universally true, yet everyone is still searching for truth. It is in this search that we can help people meet Jesus. This is the first of three types of soul searches we are going to dive into with this series. Um, and this type of person asks the question, is anything really real? These kinds of people are experiencing chaos, doubt, and fear, but we know that there is something real, and that reality is defined by God. We can meet them with the stability and security of God's good news. And like Ryan talked about last week, we are called to care about the lost and help them in this search. People living without Jesus' truth are really struggling. They're breathing in water and sinking because they don't know how to swim. They may pretend to be okay for a while, but their lack of solid foundation will always show itself eventually. They don't know what's real. They don't know what they can trust. They want something they don't know how to get. We've all been there before, and we know how scary it is. So let's learn how to help people find Jesus together. Everybody grab your Bibles, grab your journals, settle in. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 10 says, Then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the water seas, and God saw that it was good. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God separated the light from the darkness and the land from the waters. In the ancient world, the sea was mythologically and philosophically known as a place of great chaos. It was where sea dragons and Leviathan hunted people down to pull them under the water. The sea is where navigation is difficult, food is scarce, and dangers lurk around every corner. If you're not afraid of the monsters of the deep, just wait until you hear about the horrors of scurvy. Like many other cultures and religions of the ancient world, the Hebrew Bible uses this imagery of dangerous, chaotic waters regularly. Yet it isn't quite the same. Whereas the ancient world said waters were evil and impossible to conquer, the Bible said that God created the waters, and he is the ruler over everything, even the sea. He created the monsters of the deep, and he has a purpose for them. Satan is often portrayed as a sea serpent throughout the Bible, scary and very dangerous to those in the water, but in the eyes of God above, just a rogue rubber ducky in his bathtub. The God of the Bible is not afraid of the sea serpent because he has power and the plan to crush him. The God of the Bible can walk on water and calm the seas with just a few words. 
we know that God reigns over deep waters. But understanding this ancient metaphor of how people felt about the water can help us understand people now who are living without truth. Uh, when we think about the spiritual landscape of our world, we should imagine a world where people have lost their access to the land. They have been kicked out of Eden and now have to survive in the open waters. So I love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and I really like how they portray people's strategies to survive the sea. I think two characters specifically can help us understand the two types of people who are lost and looking for truth. The first type is the pirate. Think of Captain Jack Sparrow. He is the subjective type. He says the truth lies in me. He has a compass that points to whatever he wants most, and he is not really concerned with the needs of other people, um, except as a way to barter for what he wants. And this is what makes him such a cunning and unpredictable pirate. He's willing to pick up any ship, crewmate, or curse token that will get him where he wants to go. The pirate believes he knows exactly what is best for him and believes he will be content if he can find a way to obtain his treasure. With the pirate, the truth is whatever works for him. You've probably heard this before. It can sound like, I'm just living my truth. I have to follow my heart. I just have to do what works for me and you can't tell anyone else how to live. These are all examples of living in subjective truth. The pirate assumes that nothing can be known for sure. We can't be sure of anything except for what we ourselves have seen and experienced. Truth is whatever feels right. This type of person is becoming more common in the postmodern world because we live in a pluralistic culture. Pluralism is the idea that we can pick and choose the truth or parts of the truth from the world around us. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. Gone are the days when everyone in your community had the same worldview. Now you can go to the mall and build your own belief system. You don't need to find a religion. You can make one. If you ask people today, they will tell you they're spiritual. They may even agree with you on parts of the Bible, but they aren't subscribed to any one belief system. They like to pick and choose. Erwin McManus says we seem more motivated to create our own truth rather than search for it. All of these symptoms of subjectivity spread from the core issue that the pirate sees themselves as their savior. They can figure it out on their own. They can use their intuition and ambition to fight their monsters. And the second type of person we're talking about today is the admiral. In Pirates of the Caribbean, this is personified as Admiral Norrington, but it's also like just most of the British sailors throughout the series who put their trust in the crown. The admiral builds his reality with secular institutions. They believe that the truth lies in structure, order, and reason. They believe the experts know what's best. Unlike the pirate who may build a pluralist worldview based on what feels good, the admiral will build a pluralist worldview based on the data. This data usually comes from a scientific study or trusted experts. However, that does not mean it's always logical. The most common form of secular data you will see is the majority rule. Most people seem to agree, or everybody does it, also counts as evidence to people in this category. The admiral claims to be completely committed to objective truth and nothing else. They might find a sense of security from a political party, a reliable institution, or even a method of living. You will usually hear them express loyalty to their ideas and the institutions they're a part of. They often put their identity in their source of truth and will probably get defensive when these sources of truth are called into question. What this all boils down to is that the Admiral sees secular reason as their savior. The world's vast storehouses of resources and data will tell them how to navigate stormy seas. 
However, we as Christians know that both of these saviors cannot deliver on their promise. We know that only Jesus can save. A life built without him is doomed. Jesus says, anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. The pirate believes he can save himself, but we know that the self is not reliable. We are all imperfect, and we are not capable of thriving on our own. We cannot always trust ourselves to do what is best or make rational decisions. Proverbs says those who trust their own insight are foolish, but anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. We also know that the world of science and reason isn't always reliable. The admiral relies on the experts, but even the experts can be wrong, and they often disagree. And yes, when science agrees, it's amazing. We are not anti-science as Christians. We know that science has the, poten the potential to explain what happens and how, but it can never explain why. Yes, we are made up of cells. Yes, the body works in a complex system. But why is the body here? What are we made for? Science can never tell you that. All of the science in the world can never remove the mystery we experience living as limited beings in a universe created by a limitless God. And Job says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than shale, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So we know that these two types of people display a high level of ill-placed confidence in their saviors. But why do they do this? They're motivated by fear, like the most of us. Um, people's public personas are a reaction to their internal fears. If you've ever taken the Enneagram test, you can find out your type really easily just by looking at each type's core fears. For example, I am an eight wing nine, which is called the bear. Uh, an eight wing nine's core fear is being hurt by others. They avoid situations in which they have less control, generally preferring to be in positions of leadership. So I relate very much to the pirate and the admiral. Their confidence is a public face that used to hide their internal fear of instability. Truth seekers fear what they cannot control. Imagine a boat lost in a storm without an anchor. They don't have a real anchor to hold them down, but they'll tie a rope around whatever they have and use it because as fickle as a makeshift anchor is, it's better than nothing. It's better than drowning. Erwin McManus says what's perplexing is that we'll believe in something that is false, just so we don't have to experience the destabilizing effect of not knowing. We want something to be certain, something to be sure. All of us organize our lives around what we believe is true, and it makes our lives manageable and gives us some sense of control. It helps us deal with everything that is out of our control. We try to compensate for our lack of control either by increasing our sense of power or by creating greater predictability in our lives. We often flesh out our need for certainty through our need for control. Both the pirate and the admiral are looking to control their reality. In order to get it, they are restless for answers either in the world or in themselves, but their hearts will not rest until they are given absolute and unchanging truth. That is what their souls desire, and that's what we can offer them. Not a subjective truth or a pluralist truth, but God's truth. The truth is that they are drowning, and without help, they will die. The truth is that there is a Savior who actually has the power to save them and desperately wants to help. There is a Savior who knows all things, who never changes and never wavers, a Savior who offers the only reliable way to live a good and beautiful life. 
says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. Now, I think we sell ourselves short in practicing evangelism in the postmodern era because we assume that no one wants to hear what Jesus has to say. Yes, there are kinds of people who preach on the street and hurt more people than they help, but I don't think that's our community's problem. The problem is usually in action and fear of rejection. But I want to encourage you that I meet people here on campus all the time who shock me with their desire to know about God. I'm convinced that a Christian life lived well is peculiar and compelling, and people want to know why we live this way. They want to know why we have faith in something. The awesome thing about these kinds of people in particular, the pirate and the admiral, is that they are naturally curious. Um, We have atheist students who come to Bible study and meet with me regularly who fall into these two categories. So I want to tell you some of my techniques for how I talk to them and how you could talk to the people in your life who are like this. The first step is to get to know them. Take a genuine interest in them and try to figure out how they see the world. How do they decide if something is true or not? Um, If you try to evangelize to someone you don't know and don't love, it won't work. Ryan talked a lot about this last week, so I'd encourage you to listen to his message if you haven't already. The next step is to help them start to deconstruct their false beliefs. We want to help them realize that the things that they put their trust in aren't really trustworthy. We can do this in a few different ways. For one, we can ask deep questions. When we are questioned on a decision, we are forced to think twice about it, and Jesus taught us how to do this. Because in the Gospels, he asks hundreds of questions. He asks, what do you want? Why are you terrified? What are you looking for? Where is your faith? Jesus answers questions with questions. He asks questions he already knows the answers to. He asks the questions no one else has the courage to ask. So, be like Jesus. Learn how to ask really good questions and listen. Next, you can start to poke holes in their ship. Instead of only asking for information, ask them to reevaluate their decisions. If they put trust in themselves, ask them about a time they were wrong or a time that they failed. If they put their trust in an expert, question what the expert says. If they believe two things that contradict, point out how they contradict each other. It's really fun to poke holes in people's ships. (laughs) However, we have to be gentle and go slow because we want to maintain trust. Be very careful not to come across as a jerk. If their answers don't make sense, don't be rude. Just ask them if they're sure. Are you sure that's right? Are you sure that's working? Be patient and gracious and ultimately stay calm when they will disagree with you, because they will. Uh, Jude uh, says, you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. The reason why we want to poke holes in people's ship is so that they will recognize their need for a savior. We want them to recognize the sins that are contaminating their lives. Um, People usually need to feel worse before they're motivated to get better. Like when Jonah ran away from God and God had him swallowed by a whale. It took three days in that sea beast for Jonah to repent, and as soon as he did, the whale spit him up. Or when Peter jumped out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus. His faith wavered, and he fell in the water. But Jesus grabbed him and lifted him up. He didn't let him drown. There was a powerful change in Peter after he fell into the water because he knew then that he needed Jesus to save him. 
That is why we want people to deconstruct. Real change happens when people fall into the water because they will finally accept that they are drowning. Jesus said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. So when your friends start to panic and flail in the water, don't worry, that is exactly where Jesus can meet them. He blesses us when we recognize our need for him. When you get to this point, you can help them start to build on the rock. One way to do this is by sharing your testimony. Our refraining verse throughout the series is 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Sharing your testimony when you have an established relationship with someone is an awesome experience. It builds trust and leaves a lasting impact. Sharing your experience can also be really powerful in the postmodern world because the postmodern mindset highly values personal experience. Our friends may not trust what is written in the Bible, but if, you, if they trust you, they will listen to your truth. And we can be more effective in evangelism by sharing testimony conversationally in short pieces. We don't need to convince people to change their mind about Jesus in one conversation. We just need to focus on, help, on helping people take one step towards Jesus at a time, becoming just a bit more trusting, a bit more curious, a bit more open to change. We can do this by sharing short stories about how we just made one small step in our faith. Our testimony doesn't have to be about the time we decided to follow Jesus for the first time. Rather, we have these kaleidoscopic experiences with God all throughout our lives that come together to form our faith. So your testimony can be about a time you learned you were wrong and God was right. It can be a time when you failed and you couldn't fix it by yourself. It could be a time when you were depressed and God helped you find hope again. There are many small ways we experience God that are worth talking about. So when you feel the time is right, tell your friends how you realize that Jesus could be trusted. Just share your life with them and be vulnerable. Explain how Jesus did amazing things in you, and they might start to believe it's possible for them too. In the postmodern world, less and less people care about the authority of the Bible or what the church says. However, people care more now about personal experiences, and they will more than likely hear you share a personal story. The average postmodern person sees subjective experiences as truth, so share your subjective experience that stems from the subject of a good and beautiful God. You can also try using philosophy and apologetics at this point. I would, recommending, I would recommend taking ideas from books like Mere Christianity, Soul Cravings, and Evangelism Made Slightly Less Difficult. Um, aside from these, there are probably hundreds of good apologetic books that can help you. I haven't read them all, I'm not an expert, um, but taking time to just read these three apologetic books this year has made me feel much more confident in talking to people about Jesus. And I'm hopeful, I am hopeful and confident that with this series, more people in our church will take an interest in learning how to do this and put it into practice. It is really challenging, but it's also very rewarding. Helping people find Jesus is the most important and beautiful work we can do. So one apologetics tool everyone can use is just to compare. Compare the way of the world to the way of Jesus. We do this all the time here. Compare the pros and cons of each worldview and just discuss, why are they different? Contemplate how the way of Jesus satisfies our soul's desires while the way of the world leaves us empty. In his book, Soul Cravings, Erwin McManus says, beyond my flesh, beyond my mind, beyond my heart, 
there seems to be a place where my deepest and most powerful cravings lie, and they do not lie silently. My soul, it seems, always desires and demands, and no matter how I try to satisfy it, it always craves more. No, not more, but something I can't seem to understand. Each person's heart craves the divine. The critic in the book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Eternity is planted in each human heart, and it desires to grow in the light of God. The way to evangelize well is to feed people's desires with what will actually satisfy them. The way we share good news is not to say, follow God or else. People already live in the or else. Instead, we should rejoice in telling them the good news. Tell them that there is real truth out there. There is real hope. There is something better than life itself. If they try living Jesus' way, they will find safety. He can be the rock in the salvation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Um, Dear Lord, I just want to take time to pray um, for each person in this room to feel empowered and equipped to share your good news. I just pray for the people in our lives who are lost. Um, I just pray that they would see their need for you, that they would be curious, start asking questions, and that we could be people who help them on their journey to you, God. Um, I just pray we would not be afraid, that we would not be worried about taking this on, but that you would give us the wisdom and the courage that we need to do this well. Um, We pray this all in your name, God. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.